Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 18, Enduring the Unendurable. On his speech of August 15, 1945, Emperor Hirohito announced surrender to the Japanese people. He told them, in one of the greatest understatements of human history, that, quote, the war situation has developed not necessarily to Japan's advantage, while the general trends of the world have turned against her interest. Yeah, no kidding. Thus, continued the emperor, quote, It is in according to the dictates of time and fate that we have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all generations to come, by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is unsufferable. The speech and the subsequent surrender ceremony on September 2nd, 1945, marked one of the greatest moments of change in Japanese history. The Allied requirements for ending the war included three basic points, which are going to be the focus of this week's episode, and which would have been completely unthinkable a mere few weeks before. The first was the total disarmament of Japan and the dismantling of the army and navy. The second was the trial for war crimes and crimes against humanity of the Japanese civilian and military leadership. And the third, and most important by far, was the complete restructuring of Japan's economy and society to prevent the rise of another military state and liberalize the country along western lines. We're going to evaluate the occupation over the course of its seven-year run, from 1945 to 1952, on each of these points. But first, there are three things we need to cover. First, though it was nominally a multinational occupation, the occupation of Japan was overwhelmingly American in character. The supreme commander of Allied forces in Japan, General Douglas MacArthur, was an American, and the vast majority of the occupying troops were as well, though Australian and British troops were present in some number, most notably in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where it was thought, probably not incorrectly, that Americans would not be very welcome. Second, the Allies did not have a UN resolution or any other aspect of international law to back up what they did to Japan. The idea of going in and attempting to completely reorder an entire society after a war was completely unprecedented in scope and ambition, and had no antecedents anywhere in human history. Certainly the idea of subjugating another country has plenty of precedents in history, but that's emphatically not what the United States tried to do here. The idea was always to, in essence, fix Japan, and then release it back to full sovereignty as a Western-style liberal state. Third, the course of the occupation can't really be understood without reference to the course of the Cold War as a whole. In the wake of final victory in August 1945, many hoped for a new period of global peace led by the victorious powers. For example, prior to his death, American President Franklin Roosevelt spoke often of an international order led by the, quote, Four horsemen, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, Nationalist China, and the United States. While the phrase four horsemen was probably not the best choice of imagery, that turned out to be the least of the idea's problems. Rising tensions between the Soviets and their communist Chinese allies, and the bloc composed of the US, UK, and the Nationalist Chinese government, resulted in growing tension culminating in a split between the two. By 1946, Stalin, in violation of his agreements with nationalist China, was arming and supporting the Chinese communists, who that year would begin a civil war to oust the nationalist government, culminating in the establishment of the People's Republic of China. 
1946, Stalin was busily setting up puppet states in the areas of Eastern Europe occupied by the Red Army, using his secret police, the NKVD, to suppress anti-communist dissent. In response, the United States and its allies announced plans to indefinitely garrison Germany and began to draw together an anti-communist alliance with the UK, France, Canada, and other Western liberal states. The rift between the two sides grew steadily worse, culminating in the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, when North Korea, with tacit approval from Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin, invaded South Korea. In light of these developments, occupation policy in every area was steadily altered away from the original goal, articulated by Douglas MacArthur as building Japan into, quote, the Switzerland of Asia, and towards the goal of turning Japan into a stable and reliable ally for the Western liberal bloc in East Asia. Now that we've covered those basics, let's turn first to military policy. This is probably the area where we can see the about-face in occupation policy the most clearly. After the conclusion of the war in 1945, Allied policy towards the former imperial military had three defining characteristics. First, all military personnel were to be repatriated to Japan. This took years in many cases, as the Allies often needed the help of Japanese soldiers to secure the former territories of the Japanese Empire even after the surrender. In the case of China, the Nationalist Army often had to keep the Japanese around for several months after surrender in order to help maintain order. There was also, of course, the daunting logistics involved in moving millions of men hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles. Some men never made it home. Thousands of Japanese soldiers were captured by the Soviets in Manchuria and were sentenced to hard labor in Siberia. Most would never make it home. Other holdout forces never got word of the surrender or refused to accept it as legitimate. Many of the so-called Zanryu Nipponhe, or holdout Japanese soldiers, continued to fight on until given final notice of the war's end. The last of these men, known in Japanese as Nakamura Teruo, though he was actually a Taiwanese aboriginal known in his native tongue as Atun Palalian, did not surrender until December of 1974. Still others, believing in the mission of liberating East Asia from the West, volunteered their services to anti-colonial insurrections against the returning Western powers. For example, Lieutenants Igawa Shoichi, Tanimoto Kikuo, and Ishii Takuo all joined the Viet Minh as advisors to fight the French. Igawa and Ishii both died fighting the French before the conclusion of a peace deal between the Viet Minh and the French government in 1954. Similarly, Navy Lieutenant Horiuchi Hideo joined up with the Indonesian Volunteer Army to fight the Dutch returning after the war. He was captured in 1946 after being wounded during combat. Second, former leaders of the Army and Navy were purged from their positions and forbidden from holding positions of civic responsibility ever again. This was to prevent a resurgence of militarism after the occupation had ended. Third, and finally, all war-related material was destroyed. Planes, tanks, small arms, and anything else were either burned or melted for scrap, and boats were disarmed and repurposed. The goal was to totally disarm Japan by the end of the occupation. As a part of this goal, the new Japanese constitution, which had been drawn up by the occupation government and adopted without further additions by the Diet, contained as its ninth article the following words. Quote, Aspiring sincerely to an international peace, 
based on justice and order. The Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. To accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. Obviously, this is a pretty substantial step that doesn't really leave a lot of wiggle room in interpretation. However, by 1950, the situation had changed dramatically. China, the closest U.S. ally in the Pacific, had been overrun by the Chinese Communists, who established the People's Republic of China in fall of 1949. At the same time, Stalin was busily setting up a client state in the newly established North Korea. Communism in Asia seemed to be on the rise. As a result, the occupation government decided to reverse the course of demilitarization. A small military police, similar to the gendarmiers of Italy or France, was established in 1950 and steadily expanded, adding a naval wing in 1952 and being reorganized in 1953 as the Japan Self-Defense Forces, or JSDF, Jietai in Japanese. The JSDF has three wings, air, sea, and ground. And as of 2013, despite no changes in the text of Article 9, it is the fifth largest military by budget on the entire planet, after the United States, China, Russia, and the United Kingdom. Moving on to the war crimes trials, much as in Germany, the Allies felt that the atrocities committed by their foes demanded justice. The best vehicle for that justice was determined to be an international tribunal modeled after the trial of the Nazi leadership at Nuremberg which was already being organized by the time of the Japanese surrender and had gotten underway in November 1945. Trials were to be held in Tokyo, specifically in the building in the neighborhood of Ichigaya, which had once served as the headquarters for the Imperial Army. Three classes of war criminal were to be tried. Class C war criminals were those who had carried out orders deemed to be war crimes, i.e. those who had not rejected those orders as illegal under the theory which was established at the Nuremberg Trials, that military officers have a duty to refuse orders which contravene international law. Class B war criminals were those who had ordered atrocities be committed. Class A war criminals were by far the most controversial categorization. A Class A war criminal was accused of being part of a criminal conspiracy dating back to the assassination of Zhang Zuolin in 1928, to illegally expand the Japanese Empire by means of aggressive war. Nearly 6,000 Japanese were accused of Class B and C war crimes. 70 members of the governmental leadership were accused of Class A war crimes. Conspicuously absent from these lists were any members of the imperial family. Emperor Showa, despite some demands to the contrary, was protected from prosecution by Douglas MacArthur, who felt that Hirohito's use as a symbol was necessary in order to legitimize the occupation government. By extension, the honor of the entire imperial house had to be protected as well, even though some of them were clearly at least suspect under the definitions of war criminals given above. For example, Prince Asaka Yasuhiko, who is the uncle by marriage of Emperor Showa, was the commander of the forces who committed the Nanjing Massacre. His subordinate, General Matsui Iwane, was executed for his role, but Asaka was never even arrested. This is despite the fact that over the course of the entire grand conspiracy alleged by the prosecution, the leadership turned over pretty consistently, and the only man who held power the entire time 
was Emperor Showa. As one of my colleagues once dryly observed in relation to the Nuremberg trials, it's a lot easier to pick out the guilty when the leadership all put on armbands to show who should get shot once the war's over. As the above might indicate, the trials ran into problems pretty early on. The prosecution and defense were both under orders not to implicate Emperor Showa, who was to be protected and used to the benefit of the Allied government, which meant that the prosecution had to dance somewhat awkwardly around some pretty central issues to their case. For example, just how much the Emperor had known about what was going on in the war. This is a really complex issue, and we don't really have time to get into it right now. I bet you're tired of hearing me say this by now, but one of these days I do plan to do an episode on this subject. There were accusations of Victor's justice from the get-go. It struck some Japanese observers, as well as the defendants themselves, as very hypocritical that the Allies were condemning them for attacks against civilians after killing hundreds of thousands of civilians themselves during the air raids. Curtis LeMay, director of the Allied bombing effort in Japan, said during the trials that, quote, I suppose if I'd lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal, an observation which no doubt occurred to many of the defendants. The inconsistencies above even caused some of the judges to condemn the setup of the trials, particularly the absence of the emperor. The French judge, Henri Bernard, wrote as part of his final opinion that the war, quote, had a principal author who had escaped all prosecution, and of whom in any case the present defendants could only be considered as accomplices. The chief justice of the court, the Australian Sir William Webb, wrote that, quote, no ruler can commit the crime of launching aggressive war and then validly claim to be excused for doing so because his life would otherwise have been in danger. It will remain that the men who advise the commission of the crime, if it be one, are in no worse position than the man who directs the crime be committed. One of the justices, the Indian judge, Red Haminad Paul, and by the way I apologize if I butchered that name, even voted to acquit every single one of the defendants. He pointed out that conspiracy to wage aggressive war was not a crime under international law prior to the Nuremberg trials, and that in any case, the prosecution's case for a conspiracy to wage aggressive war from 1928 on was weak at best. Justice Paul would eventually issue a 1,200-page dissenting opinion in which he argued that every single person who had been accused of a war crime should be acquitted on all charges. We don't really have time to get into the idea of whether or not Paul's opinion was correct, but suffice it to say there's a lot to talk about there. Despite all these qualms, judgments were eventually handed down on 28 of the Class A defendants and most of the Class B and C ones on November 28, 1948. Six of the Class A suspects were executed, one acquitted on grounds of mental instability, two died during the course of the trial, and the remainder received some form of prison sentence. The convicted Class B and C criminals were imprisoned for varying lengths of time. All of the convicted were purged from holding further office. However, after the first round of trials, since of course there were still 42 Class A defendants to go, the wind seemed to go out of the tribunal's sails. The remaining Class A suspects were eventually released without trial, and the proceedings concluded after the first ruling. In fact, one of the men who was arrested but not tried for Class A war crimes, Kishi Nobusuke, would actually go on to be Prime Minister in the 1950s with the blessing of the U.S. government. On the whole, the trials tend to receive a generally negative evaluation by most scholars today. The twin blemishes of the perception of Victor's justice and the protection of Hirohito 
have seemed to discredit its findings in the eyes of many, particularly in Japan. The decision to label as malice what seems to have been primarily incompetence, and to seek out a grand conspiracy in the leadership where there was in fact probably just opportunism, have enabled many right-wing nationalists to condemn the trial, and in many ways its legacy has made it more difficult in the modern day to fight for acknowledgement of the wrongs of wartime Japan, because such a stance is associated with the taint of the war crimes trials. The failure to even indict Hirohito is pointed to by some historians as the source of the reticence of many Japanese to look at the behavior of their country in the war. After all, to paraphrase the historian John Dower, why should any of them confront their guilt if the man in whose name and by whose forces the entire war was fought never confronted his? Finally, let us turn to the social aspects of the occupation. There are quite a few. Frankly, I originally thought just this part would be its own episode. But in the interests of time, we're going to focus on the ones I consider to be the most significant. The extension of political freedom, economic reform, and women's rights. Turning first to political freedom. The occupation authorities did move to liberalize many aspects of the old system. State Shinto as a compulsory state religion centered on the emperor was disestablished. Free elections were held, and the restrictions against certain parties, most notably in an attempt to reach out to the Soviet Union, the Marxists, were lifted. Unions, previously banned, were organized. Free elections were held starting in 1947, with all groups allowed to participate. A new constitution, organized along a combination of the American and British models, was drafted by the occupation and presented to the Diet, where it was eventually adopted. The constitution guarantees many of the standard human rights – life, liberty, property, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly, and so on. However, said freedom was in practice not total during the occupation. Most notably, the occupation kept a strict regime of censorship in place preventing the publication of anything perceived as critical of its policies or the Allies in general. One of the most famous examples was the suppression of anything to do with the atomic bombings. Prior to the withdrawal of the occupying forces, most Japanese had no idea what the bombs had even done, since nothing about them had ever been published. In addition, once the Cold War began to build up steam in 1947, the decision was made to crack down on Marxists in Japan, since the fear was that they would present a potential fifth column if the Soviets were to attack the country. A general strike planned for 1948 to protest low wage growth during the occupation was banned by MacArthur, and starting in 1948 the censors began blocking Marxist groups from even organizing. This was viewed as a massive betrayal by many of the new labor groups, who had believed they would have total freedom under American protection. It did, however, do the job of keeping the left in Japan under control. While the Socialist Party continued to grow and became the major post-war opposition force up until the 1990s, the radical left was never able to gain traction in Japan once MacArthur weighed in against them. Economic reform proved rather more successful. It had two major components, land redistribution and the breakdown of the major corporate conglomerates. Prior to the war, most farmers in Japan had been tenants who rented land in exchange for paying a percent of their harvest as rent. This kind of tenantship is generally seen in modern capitalist and agrarian thought to be a bad thing, since it discourages long-term identification with and improvement of land, in exchange for just making the rent. It also gives an exorbitant amount of power to the owners of the land, since they are both landlord and boss for the tenant, 
The occupation was determined to liberalize this sector via forced redistribution, and that's exactly what it did. The tenancy rate in Japan dropped from over 50% in 1945 to near 10% by 1953. This campaign proved massively successful and hugely popular with everyone who wasn't a landlord. It was also seen as the kind of thing only the occupation could do, since in any other system such radical change would be blocked by the organized political efforts of the landlords. The economic conglomerates, however, proved much more able to resist the dictates of the occupation. While the Zaibatsu, which had dominated the scene since the Meiji era, were broken up and their monopolies were crushed, the Allies never completed the process of disassembling them. The fear of Marxism in Japan meant that in 1947, priorities began to shift away from the idea of economic fairness towards the need to rebuild the economy as fast as possible in order to remove the impetus provided by poverty for further Marxist organization. Thus, the old Zaibatsu were allowed to remain partially intact, with increased restrictions on their behavior. This didn't really do much to stop them, though. The old conglomerates found a way around the laws and reorganized themselves in loose economic conglomerates called Keiretsu. How they did this is a little Byzantine and kind of boring, but essentially, while the ties of the... While the ties of the Zaibatsu system were weakened, the system was not made totally free trade. Instead, centrally directed banks, such as, for example, the Mitsui Bank, were set up and used as holding corporations. The job of the bank was to invest in various sub-businesses, for example, Mitsui Steel, and use the majority share provided by that investment in order to become its de facto controllers. The Keiretsu continued to dominate the economy into the 1990s, and still loom large today. Finally, let's talk about the issue of women in the occupation. Alongside land reform, women's liberation during the occupation is probably one of its greatest successes. The Japanese constitution is arguably one of the most liberal in the world in terms of its guarantees of gender equality. Women are constitutionally guaranteed the right to vote, full equality with men, and protection from practices such as forced marriage. Why, you might ask? The answer is a bit complex, but the largest factor was the coincidental presence in the occupation of an Austrian-American Jewish woman named Beata Sirota. Sirota was born in Vienna in 1923. After the rise of Hitler, her parents, like most Jews who could afford to do so, got the hell out of Dodge. Her father was a talented musician and got a job teaching at Tokyo Imperial University. As a result, she lived several years in Japan and knew the language and culture better than most. She signed up for the occupation to help improve a country she was very fond of, and ended up as part of the American committee that drafted the new constitution. In that role, and at the tender age of 24, she convinced the committee to include provisions protecting Japanese women. Sirota then worked with Japanese feminists, most notably Kato Shizue, to ensure that these provisions would remain intact once the Diet approved the constitution. Shizue, by the way, went on to make history by becoming the first Japanese woman ever to be elected to the Diet in the election in 1947. She also scandalized Japanese public opinion by becoming one of the first prominent women to leave her husband and remarry after her first husband treated her poorly. She's a very interesting figure, and one day I'd like to do an episode on her. Sirota's biography of her life during the occupation is well worth a read. Of course, it's also worth noting that she was not, in fact, the only woman in the room. The American economist Eleanor Hadley helped draft the anti-Zaibatsu regulation for the occupation and many economic aspects of the new constitution. 
Regardless, the protection of women is one of the few areas where the occupation was definitely an unqualified success. In the first free diet election, nearly 50 women were elected to seats, and while they have encountered pushback, politically active women continue to make gains in modern Japan. The occupation came to an end much sooner than was originally intended. The most optimistic estimates in 1945 were that Japan's sovereignty would be restored, perhaps as early as 1960. Instead, pressure from a revived Japanese leadership, being composed, as we'll discuss next week, mostly of economic liberals and capitalists, began to build in the 1950s, and the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950 meant that American troops were needed outside of Japan. In addition, post-war Japan finally seemed to be thriving. A weak economy had dogged recovery in the 1940s. However, a massive influx of cash from the United States as a result of the Korean War, since the United States began paying Japanese corporations for goods and services for their soldiers, brought the economic doldrums to an end. As a result, a final peace treaty restoring Japanese independence was signed in San Francisco in 1951, and full Japanese sovereignty was restored in 1952, minus the islands of Okinawa, which remained in U.S. hands and would not be returned to Japan until 1973. So how then are we supposed to judge the occupation? In some respects, such as land reform and women's rights, it was a huge success. In others, such as the reform of the Zaibatsu and the war crimes trials, it was not. In the case of the military, the entire goal of the reforms was changed halfway through. The simple truth is that there's no easy answer. Some see the occupation as a great and glorious moment in American history when America reworked Japan in her image and created a bulwark of freedom in Asia. Others saw the occupation as the Hand of Imperialism version 2.0 and an attempt by a victorious power to forcibly impose its will on the defeated. Both visions of the occupation are kind of true. Much like the Greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, some people genuinely believed in the project, and others saw the cynical chance to use another country for their own benefit. There's a line from Chairman Mao that I think conveys the right spirit here. When someone asked him once about the legacy of the French Revolution, which had occurred about 200 years earlier, he said something to the effect of, we'll see how it turns out. Certainly, if we're still waiting for the results of the French Revolution, it's a bit early to be judging the results of the occupation. We'll see how it turns out. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.